Welcome to Carl Ching's Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author, Professor Carl Chin, honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising that there were sinners as well as saints. Hello. This month I want to take you on a journey with me. A journey both through time and through places. A journey that will explain why my family came to Birmingham and why I'm a proud Brummie. It's a story of the making of a Brummie. It is both strange and exhilarating to follow in the path of your ancestors. I've lived in and around Kingsheath and Mosey all my life. And from when I was a child, I was aware that my family had a long-standing connection with these areas and that I walked where my ancestors had walked. But I had no idea quite how long standing and quite how deep was that connection until the last few years. My own story starts here in Westerns Road on the corner of Billsley Lane in Mosley. It's one of four short roads named after the point of the compass. Mum and Dad moved here from rooms in Newton Road, Spark Hill, not far away, just before I was born in 1956. For our mum especially, moving to Mosley was a magical experience. She come from a back house in Industrial Aston and Mum was enchanted by the greenery, the trees, the flowers, the fresh air and the openness of the new place where she lived. So I grew up in what was like a little village made up of Westlands, Eastlands, Southlands and Northlands roads, along with part of Billsley Lane. Our friends lived around the corner and we'd play out with them safely on the streets till late, especially in the light nights. We had a poisonous brook, or so we thought, that stopped us from getting into the unknown world of Mosey Golf Club from the bottom of Northlands, and we even had our own nurse. Nurse Leg was a retired woman to whom you could always run for help and advice. To us as children, most of the neighbours were known as Mr or Mrs, and then their surname. But we were very close to Mrs Albert, and she was always Aunt Nancy to us as a result. She was a very special neighbour and a very special family friend. The village feel locally was enhanced by our own shops. My first errand on my own and down the road was to Blenheim Stores, now a one-stop just across Billsley Lane. That's where Mum bought some of her groceries, although she did most of her shopping down the lane, the Ladypool Road in Sparkbrook, where Dad came from. But just up from us, there was a sweet shop alongside Blenheim Stores, which had a lucky dip and where we could spend coppers on blackjacks and fruit salads, flying saucers and kaylite. On the opposite corner, across Blenheim Road itself, was Simsy's, the greengrocers. When I was a toddler, I loved strawberries so much that they had to cover them up when they saw Mum approaching the shop with me, or else I'd be picking up all the punnets and getting Mum to buy them. We even had our own butcher at the end of our road, Mr Nicholas, whose shop proclaimed home-killed meat. And a few yards away on the corner of Southlands Road was an outdoor. Just a bit further along Billsley Lane was Greenall Garage, which is still providing a fine service today and then came a little sweet shop on the corner of Greenall Road. If we needed something other than these shops could provide, then Mum would send us up Cambridge Road to the co-op in Kingsley Village, where we would also go to Saturday matinees at the Kingsway to see films with the likes of Morecambe and Wise and Norman Wisdom. My world started to stretch out from Westlands Road when I started school at Mosey Church of England in the aptly named School Road. And that's also where my awareness of my family history starts to grow. From family stories, I knew that my great-grandfather, Richard Chin, had gone to the same primary school in the same building. It was officially called Mosey National School, 
and in my childhood in the 1960s, it was surrounded by houses. But in his day, my great-grandfather's day in the 1870s, it lay in the midst of the Worcestershire countryside. Yes, this was once Worcestershire. That building was an old one, and it used to have a prominent stone on it with the date 1828, the year when it opened. I'm standing in School Road now where it used to be, as it was knocked down only a few years ago. However, the school itself had moved in 1969, two years after I left, to new premises just up the road, in Oxford Road. Standing here, though, I can still bring to mind the old playground and the vile boys' outside toilets on the far side of the playground. Inside the school, the brickwork was painted white and the dominating feature was the hall, the bottom end of which could be divided off into a classroom. In those days, we had assembly each morning, presided over by Mr Grail, who was an outstanding headmaster. As we assembled, he used to play classical music on an old gramophone, and once we were ready, there would be announcements and the singing of a hymn. Each Friday, the vicar of St Mary's Church in Mosey Village would come over and take the assembly. I recall that he used to go through Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress on those visits, but it seemed that it took him years to do so, as if he himself had got stuck in the slough of despond. We were told that great Grandad's older sister used to take him into school with her, but that almost immediately would go back out and play the wag. great Grandad she must have also known Mosley Village well, as did I. As we got older, sometimes the teacher would send us into the village to fetch something for them. Mind you, that's not something that would be allowed today. Shops I recall well are Simpsons the fishmongers, Gascoigne's the funeral directors, Druckers with their cakes and the Stonely Dog Shop. Of course, however, the dominating building in the village was St Mary's Church, where we knew that we had ancestors buried in the churchyard, and to which we would go from school for services at Easter and Christmas time especially. We still have a bond with St Mary's, as that was the place where we held the service for our dad's funeral in 2010. So what else did I know about the Chim family as I was growing up? Well, we were led to believe that the Chimbrook was named after us, and hence Chimbrook Road in Billsley. The brook itself rises close to the boundary of Alvechurch and Withall, and then runs into the River Cole at the Dingles, near to Tritterford Pool, which is where I am now. It's a most peaceful spot, apart from the Canadian geese, with a heron standing imperiously on the island in the middle of the pool. This stream was called Chinda in an Anglo-Saxon charter as far back as 972, and then it was named the Water of Chin in 1495. But as my family didn't come to the Kings Norton and Kingsleaf areas until the late 1700s, I don't think that the Chinbrook is actually named after us, and that puts paid to the family legend. Another family story, though, is rooted in fact. We were told that great-granddad Chin's father, Henry, had farmed somewhere in Kingsleaf, and that he had died in a farming accident. But I didn't realise that whenever I step along the high street or go around King's Heath Park or shop in Sainsbury's that I am stepping alongside my ancestors. That's because Henry Chin's father, another Henry, who I'll now call Henry the Elder, had his farmhouse here where I'm now standing just outside Sainsbury's on the Ulcester Road. This is now one of the busiest, noisiest and most congested routes into Birmingham, but then it must have been much quieter going as it did through countryside. Henry the Elder rented the 88-acre Church End Farm in King's Heath. This encompassed all the land behind the house as far back as about Hazelhurst Road and from Vicarage Road, then called Bleak Lane, along to Featherstone Road. The owner of the farm was William Congreve Russell, one of the biggest landowners in Mosey and King's Heath. Henry the Elder also rented Roweith Farm in what is now Bourneville, right by Capri's. 
The two farms gave him 136 acres of farmland and a position of status. He became both the church warden and an overseer of the poor in Kings Norton. Ironically, Henry's sister Elizabeth did not fare so well. In 1861, she was a widow aged 67 who was struggling as a charwoman in Gravely Hill over by Erdington, whilst her unmarried son was an agricultural labourer. Moreover, Henry the Elder's own grandchildren by his oldest son, also called Henry, would themselves have to endure poverty. So, what happened? Well, by 1861, Henry the Elder had given over the tenancy of Roe Heath Farm to his second son, William. But his main farm in Kings Heath was worked as a family affair. He employed only one labourer, for he had the help of his three single children, Henry, James and Anne. Later that year, Henry the Younger, now aged 38, married Mary Ann Grigg. She had been born in Northfield, but had lived at Roe Heath, where her family farmed near to the Chins. Soon afterwards, Henry the Younger took on Church End Farm from his father. Unhappily, the fortunes of the family changed badly for the worse, and in 1868, both he and his brother William of Roheath were made bankrupt. It must have been a bitter pill for Henry the Elder to swallow. As he came to the end of his life, his life's work in raising his family's position to one of comfort and security had been shattered. He died in 1873 at the old age of 80 and was buried at St Mary's Mosley as had been his mother, father and wife. Yet worse was to come for his family. His bankrupt son Henry the Younger had quickly found work as a farm bailiff with the Cartlands of the Priory. That house and the land around it is now King Edward School Camp Hill and it used to be visited by the novelist Barbara Cartland. I'm right by the entrance to the school in Vicarage Road because somewhere close to here Henry the Younger lived with his wife Mary Ann and their children in a tied cottage. It was not the life of a prosperous tenant farmer but it was still a good job that was far better than that of an agricultural labourer. Then, tragedy struck in 1877. The family story goes that Henry the Younger fell off a haystack and broke his neck. He was 54 and was buried at All Saints Church in King's Heath. Whatever the cause of the death, it was a disaster for his widow, Mary Ann. She had five children, eight, 12 and under, but with no man, she lost both his income and her home, for the cottage had gone with the job. I admire her because she kept her family together after moving to Sparkbrook. But that story is for later because now I want to go back and explain how the Chins came first to King's Eve and for that we need to go to the village of Rowington in Warwickshire. I've come to where the Chin family story really begins, at the Church of St Lawrence in Rowington. Now part of Soliol, historically the village was in the Forest of Arden that ancient region in which isolated farms and hamlets dotted a woodland setting. I'm at the entrance to the churchyard itself, near to the parish war memorial and the eye-catching yew trees which have been clipped into the shape of domes. There's been a church here from at least the 12th century, but for centuries the most striking external feature has been its central tower, which now holds six bells in a steel frame and which also houses a clock. This church is most important to me and my family, however, as it was here that in 1619 was baptised a Henry Chin. He was yet another Henry Chin, who was the son of, yes, you've guessed it, Henry Chin. And he is the most distant relative to whom I can connect, going back father to son through the generations. Interestingly, the young Henry was christened on September the 5th, and I was born on September the 6th. 
According to the records of Rowington, this Henry Jr., as he became styled, was married to a woman called Elizabeth. And in November 1646, their son, Richard, was baptised. By then, the First English Civil War was all but over and the parliamentarians had been victorious over the royalists. Charles I was soon to be handed over to Parliament and we know what happened to him in January 1649. I have often wondered what experiences my ancestors had during these turbulent times, but perhaps I'll always have to wonder because of the lack of evidence. Anyway, there is one intriguing entry in the Rowington records for my family. It's from March the 3rd, 1665, and it states simply that Old Chin was buried. I feel sure that this would have been the father of Henry Chin Jr. Over the next few generations, the names Henry, John and Richard were common amongst the Chins of the village, and this makes it difficult to trace exactly who was the son of whom. But before I move on with the story, I want to jump back a few hundred years because the Chins were long settled in this part of the Forest of Arden. I've walked from the front entrance of the church into the churchyard, and I've done so because it includes the graves of the Sly family, whose ancestors are reputed to have been mentioned in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And you'll find out soon why the mention of Shakespeare is so relevant. Right then, let's jump back to the 12th century, when a Ralph Chin was one of the witnesses to a fascinating legal document. By this document, William of Arden was getting his late father's feudal overlord, Nigel of Mowbray, to recognise him as his vassal in successor to his father. Like the other witnesses, Ralph Chin must have been a member of Nigel's coterie, or group. But whether he was another of Nigel's vassals or worked for him is not known. Anyway, the fact that Ralph had a surname where most people did not suggests that he had some social standing locally. However, he would not have been too high up the ladder because he was Ralph Chin and not Ralph de Chin. I could get fanciful here, and okay, I will. I've always been absorbed by beginnings, beginnings of countries, beginnings of towns and cities, beginnings of families, and so I'm also captivated by how my own family began. I've had my DNA done, and my paternal ancestry is Anglo-Saxon, although my maternal bloodline is from Ireland and is pre-Celtic. So, on the Chin side, I am descended from the Angles who settled in the Birmingham area either in the late 6th century or the early 7th century. A Germanic people, their ancestors had sailed across the North Sea from Angelen, the small peninsula in Jutland, hard on the borders of Germany with Denmark, and which carries that name still. Of course, these Angles are recorded in East Anglia, and they gave their name to Angleland, England. Now, I'm also drawn to connections, and in particular to the one between Ralph Chin and William of Arden. And so I also find it fascinating that William of Arden was descended from Wolfwyn, an Anglo-Saxon lord who owned wide lands in Warwickshire and was the nephew of Leofric, Earl of Mercia, and Lady Godiva, who founded the Benedictine Priory, which was responsible for the growth of Coventry. Presumably because he did not fight at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and did not get engaged in rebellions thereafter, Wolfroyne was allowed to keep the great majority of his estates in North Warwickshire. In fact, he was one of the very few Anglo-Saxon lords who did keep his lands. They included Park Hall, Castle Bromwich, Peddymore, Curdeth and Minneth, as well as many manors in the Forest of Arden, from which his family took their surname. It seems that there was some sort of connection between the Chins and the Ardens, and it is interesting that Shakespeare's mother Mary was an Arden. 
Moreover, his father's family were prominent in Rowington, where my family came from. The Shakespeare's lived in Shakespeare Hall at the time when the Chins were also in the village. There are no longer Chins in Rowington, as the members of the various branches of the family moved away to Coventry and Birmingham for work and opportunities throughout the 18th century. The story of that migration begins with my, now are you listening, my great, 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 great grandfather, Richard Chin, which was then spelled with just one N. Mind you, our name could also be spelt C-H-Y-N, or C-H-Y-N-N, or C-H-Y-N-E, or variations of the same. Now, Richard was born in Rowington in 1765. It seems that by this period, the Chins were yeomen, small-scale tenant farmers. Better off as they were than either landless labourers or skilled agricultural workers, yet they never came near to rising to the same wealth and prestige of families like the Colmores and Smallbrooks of Birmingham. They too had started off as yeomen, but unlike my family, they went on to thrust themselves out of their middling status and into the ranks of the landed gentry. Like so many others from rural North Warwickshire, Richard followed other chins to the rapidly expanding manufacturing town of Birmingham and married Anne Pearson at St Martin's in the Bullring in 1790. The couple did not stay in the town though. Anne had been born in Sheldon, where her four children were baptised. Thence, she and Richard moved their family to King's Norton, where their older daughter was married at St Nicholas's in 1818. Richard was unable to write, for he made only his mark as a witness. That's why I'm now on the green at King's Norton, looking at the church of St Nicholas. Although now it's deeply embedded within urban Birmingham, this remains an oasis of Tudor England, as it looks much like it would have done in 1538 when John Leland came here on his travels. He described King's Norton as an attractive country town in Worcestershire, where there was a fine church and some good houses belonging to wallstaplers. They probably included the Saracen's Head, now called St Nicholas Place. I've just walked up Birdcage Walk and I'm right by the graveyard of St Nicholas's Church and I'm looking up at its impressive spire. So what was the draw of King's Norton for Richard Chin? Well, it was his older brother John. John had married a Mary Barwell of St Martin's in 1788, but in his will of 1813 he was described as a yeoman of King's Norton. Now this is where family history can get very confusing. And to really mix up matters for me and my family, there's an older John Chin associated with Kings Norton. In 1766, apprenticeship records indicate that he took on a John Avery of Kings Norton as his apprentice cordwainer. As such, he was a shoemaker, but the term cordwainer, then as now, was infused with prestige. Cordwainers were originally highly skilled craftsmen who used the finest goatskin leather from Cordoba in Spain, hence Cordovan leather, and thus those who used such leather were Cordovaners, or Cordwainers. By the 18th century, Cordwainers such as John Chin may not have used the finest leather, but they did work only with new leather. By contrast, cobblers worked with old leather and were also repairers of shoes. Now, Let's confuse matters even further because there's yet another John Chin who was a die sinker in Birmingham. That was another skilled occupation associated with the metal trades. He's noted as taking on apprentices in 1765 and 1770. Either he, John Chin the die sinker, or John Chin the cordwainer, could have been the John Chin who was baptised in Rowington in 1730. 
Be that as it may, what is apparent is that the chins of the village were being pulled into the rapidly expanding town of Birmingham right at the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. So, let's get back to John Chin, the yeoman of Kings Norton, and his brother Richard. Well, this John Chin and his wife had no children, and so in his will, he left small sums of money to his various nephews and nieces. But the largest amounts of £25 each went to two of Richard Chin's children, Elizabeth and Henry, who was my great-great-great-grandfather. After making provision for his wife in his lifetime, John also left them the rest of his personal estate, share and share alike. There is, however, another puzzle here. My great-great-great-great-grandfather Richard was born in 1765, and he did indeed have a brother called John. But according to the registers of Rowington, he had died as a small child in 1763. Another John Chin is recorded in this source as having been born in 1758. Now, my direct ancestor Richard was the son of Richard the Elder and an Abigail Hornblower. But this other John, born in 1758, was the son of a Henry Chin and an Elizabeth Palmer. The two fathers were cousins, but that still leaves the problem of John Chin, the yeoman of Kings Norton, describing as his brother the Richard who would seem to be his cousin. Perhaps the vicar of Rowington had made a mistake. And in fact, the John Chin who had died young was the son of Henry, and the John who lived was actually the son of Richard the Elder. Unfortunately, this seems unlikely, as John the Yeoman also left a sum of money, £5 each, to the children of his sister Mary Glover. There is no evidence that Richard the Elder and Abigail had a daughter named Mary, but Henry and Elizabeth did indeed have such a child. Lots of problems and lots of mysteries. And to make matters even more puzzling, as if they weren't puzzling enough, John named as his executor another brother, Henry. Yet the Robinson registers give no indication of a Henry who was a brother either to John or to Richard, although such a Henry may have been baptised in another parish. However, what is important, despite all these puzzles, is that John the Yeoman left £5 each to the children of his brother-in-law, William Barwell. But apart from his wife, the main beneficiaries of the will were two of Richard's children, Henry and Elizabeth. Another sister, Mary, had died as an infant, and a third, Sarah, was for some reason excluded. This Henry, the beneficiary, is my great-great-great-grandfather, and the Henry the Elder of Church End Farm in King's Eve. So Henry and Elizabeth shared the large sum of £50, as well as the residue of John the Yeoman's estate. Henry himself went on to marry at St Martin's in 1821. His wife was Anne Barwell, a relative of his aunt. Although born in Birmingham, Anne's family hailed from Bicknell, next to Sheldon. One of the Barwells, Peter, would become a Lord Mayor of Birmingham in 1992. So there's a distant connection between the Chins and the Barwells. I've come back to Mosley, and I'm at the entrance of St Mary's Church. Now, Henry the Elder and his wife Anne had four children. All of them were baptised at St Philip's, now the cathedral in Birmingham between 1823 and 1836, but later censuses indicate that they were born in Kings Norton. Henry's father Richard died aged 76 in 1842 and was buried here in the churchyard of St Mary's. Henry himself, Henry the Elder of course, is also buried here. He died in 1873 aged 80, a year after his wife Anne Barwell. Their daughter, Anne Barwell-Chin, died as a spinster, aged 86 in 1922, and was the last of the chins buried at this church. I never heard any talk of Anne Barwell-Chin. 
yet she died in 1922, the year in which my granddad Chin started up as an illegal book in Studley Street, down the lane, the Ladyfoot Road in Spark Brook. Anne Anne lived only a few hundred yards away from him, in Laburnum Grove, Woodbridge Road mostly. That today is just off Church Road, which runs downhill until it becomes the Ladypool Road, just before Brighton Road and Taunton Road. According to the 1911 census, Anne was of independent means, so it seems that she must have inherited the estate of her father, Henry the Elder. It must have been a goodly sum, because she lived in a substantial house in a terrace that is highly desirable today. I know that my great-uncle Bill, the next oldest to my granddad, told me that he remembered his granny chin, the widow of Henry the Younger, but he never mentioned her sister-in-law and his great-aunt. It appears that when Henry died, contact was broken with his widow and her children. So what happened to her and to them? Well, Mary Ann Chin must have been a strong and determined woman, for she kept her family together and out of the hated workhouse. Putting what belongings she had on a handcart, she must have traipsed to nearby Spark Brook, then part of Borsal Heath, and rented a back house, where I am now in White Street. In front of me, I can see the Tower of St Agatha's Church on the Stratford Road, and just to my side is Clifton Road School, where my dad went, my granddad went, and my great-grandmother went on the day it opened. I'm standing only a few yards from the corner of the Ladypool Road in Clifton Road, and the Clifton Pub, where I used to take bets on a Saturday dinner time when I was a bookie, just down the road from here in the late 70s and 80s. The Clifton is now a restaurant and the back houses where my great-great-grandmother lived were knocked down back in the 1960s. But for all those changes, the street pattern is the same and standing here by the lane, I feel for Mary Ann Chin and I get angry for her that she had to scratch her living as a washerwoman whilst her sister-in-law lived in comfort just up the road. Mary Ann lay on a hard bed, but she made it as best as she could and it couldn't have been easy for her, having to take in the dirty clothes and linen of the posh folks in Mosley, and standing day after day in the cold and damp of a windowless brewers, the washhouse, maiding and dollying, bluing and rinsing, to make sure that she kept herself and her children safe, sound and in food. Her ability to cope against adversity meant that she got by, though she and her children, including my great-grandfather Richard, knew what it was to be clammed, to be hungry, and to have to collar to get by. Mary Ann Chin, my great-great-grandmother died in 1910, still living in White Street and still a widow after 33 years. The last words of the Chins and King's Heath I'll leave to my great-uncle Walt, and a most apt place to give them is here where I am, outside All Saints Church, the parish church. Now fronted by an impressive town square, it's always been at the heart of King's Heath village, and it's where my great-great-grandfather Henry Chin the Younger is buried. The story of the Chin family in Birmingham, and especially in and around King's Heath, began with him and his father. And Henry the Younger is the ancestor whose name and death were passed on to me by my great-uncle Walt. I was fortunate to know him and to learn from him. Born in 1897, he was the youngest brother of five, whilst my granddad, Richard Alfred, was the oldest. Great-uncle Walt and his middle brother, great-uncle Bill, both had long lives, and I was lucky enough to talk with them and get their memories on tape before they died. They told me a lot, and Great Uncle Wall also gave me a copy of his fascinating memoirs called In Victoria's Image. This is what he had to say in the late 1970s about our family and where we have lived. King's Heath now seems to be swamped with supermarkets and conditions that make it hard to remember when that spot and Mosey Village had each a quiet rural atmosphere with characters of their own in open surroundings. A strong attachment to King's Heath stems from the fact that it was the birthplace and home of several generations of the family, 
and many other stories handed down through parents depicting the quiet, rural existence of the village, which has few remains to bear it out, but the family association is recorded on headstones in All Saints Churchyard and Mosley Old Church. Now, life in the area stands out in contrast with the bustling scenes of change, since when Poplar Road, Silver Street and Vicarage Road were the only outlets to the village. The last of the old dwellings on the main road through the village, Holly Cottage, was recently demolished following the removal some years ago of a minor landmark, the Pear Tree, which stood outside the Cross Guns public house. The association with the old village is personal as well as general in that particular area through a grandfather's employment as bailiff on the estate of Major John Cartland, resident at the old priory, now demolished. Apart from that engagement, Grandfather Henry gave his name to the farm situated at the junction of the main and vicarage roads, a fact that is recorded on old ordnance maps. Also to the brook that is now taken underground to emerge near Chimbrook Road at Yardley Wood. It is little less than a century ago when passers-by near the farm gazed over the low brick walls of the pigsties to watch the pigs grouting in their troughs, where now stands a modern supermarket. The farm was to lose its occupant, Henry, in an untimely accident to find his end recorded on a gravestone in All Saints Churchyard, following a fall from a load of hay on which he was probably dozing after a visit to the old red line in Vicarage Road, still standing near to its new counterpart and when the century was young. Had Grandfather Henry waited until he was in bed, a turnover could have been made with safety instead of meeting an early end. Carl Chins Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com. Come. <laughs>